comes from uh, John chapter 18. We're going to read the whole chapter from verses 1 to 27. When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside of the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, and so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again Peter denied it. 
And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Let's talk to God. Gracious Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for John, who wrote it, and uh, your Holy Spirit, who inspired him to recall the details. And we ask that you be with us now as we reflect on this word together, uh, that you would be strengthening our faith. Uh, And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A a few years ago, uh, Megs and I, uh, my wife and I, had the great privilege of going to Santorini, uh, you know, with all the uh, whitewashed houses and little churches with um, blue domes. Uh, One of the more popular blue domed churches had many newlyweds getting their photos taken on it and and around it uh, while we were there. Beautiful people with uh, beautiful frocks and suits in beautiful poses on a beautiful backdrop. So I thought that um, I'd get Megs to take a quick shot of me uh, lying over it too in mock fashion. And, um, and there I am. But as Megs took the shot, a, uh, a wedding photographer, he appeared just around a corner and he told me off for desecrating the church. And uh, I felt terrible, like absolutely terrible. For all the fun that I thought it would be, Instead, I got the guilt and I worried terrible, terribly at how stupid I'd been. Now, I'm not sure if you've done something that stupid, uh, but I'm sure that we've all walked away from something we've done or said and realised how bad we are uh, and how we wouldn't want to hang around us and so why would anyone else, let alone God? Which is why today's passage, I reckon, is such a comfort. But before we get into that, let's uh, recap where we've been so far in John. Jesus has been chatting with his disciples, preparing them for the immediate and then the distant future, an immediate future in the next few hours, actually, when he's going to leave them, he's going to die uh, and be be crucified, but also preparing them uh, to leave them more permanently after he rises from the dead as he goes back to the Father. Uh, Now, they've understood pretty much none of this. Uh, as he said this, except that he's leaving them, uh, and that's stressing them out a lot. So he he assures them, don't worry. He says, God the Holy Spirit, he will be with you and in you. You won't be left alone. And then he prays for them. But not only for them, he, he prays for those who would believe in their message about him. He prays for us. He prays that, amongst other things, we might see his glory. But how? How are we going to see his glory when life, our life now, and even Jesus' life back then, particularly in the hours before his death, just seems so inglorious? Well, simply it's because Jesus is in control. Even over things that seem inglorious. And that's where I reckon the passage is taking us today to see that Jesus is in control, even when it looks bad for him, and even when we're bad. Jesus is in control. So, first up, Jesus is in control, even when it looks bad for him. Even when he's getting betrayed. As we've seen in chapter 13, Jesus already already knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he even decides where. Verse 1, we we read, uh, Jesus left with his disciples across the 
Kidron Valley on the other side there was a garden and he and his, his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Why? Well, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, building, uh, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus had often met in this garden with his disciples and he knew, Judas knew, and he knew that's the first place he'd look. So he goes there. He knows all that's going to happen to him, so he didn't wait for the mob to to get to him. He actually goes out to them. So although it looks bad, you know, a mob coming to take you, that's bad, uh, Jesus is in control of the when, where and who of his betrayal. He's also in control of his own arrest. And the next bit is, is really cool. You might have uh, picked it up as we were reading it earlier. Because he goes out to the mob and he says in verse 4, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what Jesus says here is, is a, a little bit ambiguous. Uh, in the Greek, he literally says, I am, with an emphasis on the I. I myself am. Which could be simply understood as, I am he, or it could be understood as the name that God gave himself. Uh, way back when uh, Moses met God in the burning bush, God told him his name. We read this in Exodus uh, the book of Exodus, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say uh, to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The name God gave himself is I am. And so with Jesus back here in John, you could have been forgiven for hearing him say, I am, in the sense of the I am, God himself. He's done it earlier, and the reaction was outcry. People tried to stone him for claiming to be the I am. And here he's doing it again. But this time, those who hear him, they draw back and fall to the ground. Now, whether that's because they're just so shocked that he'd say such a thing, uh, and it takes them a little, you know, a little bit to pull themselves together and regroup, or, or whether it's because at that moment Jesus kind of lets a little bit of his, his godness leak out and literally knock them back onto their butts. Either way, Jesus is in control. He's the one moving things along. Again, asking the question in verse 7, who is your what? Although it's bad to get arrested, he's the one directing his own arrest. He's in control of the when, where and who of his betrayal. He's in control of his own arrest and he's in control of looking after his own. As he leverages the shock or the power of saying, I am, to keep the focus on him and not on his disciples. Verse 7 again, we read, again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for him, for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus repeats what he said earlier. Literally, I told you uh, that I am. 
with all the same kind of overtones of calling himself God again. And maybe it's this that keeps the mob's murderous anger on him and not on his disciples. They're focusing on him and they leave his disciples alone. Whatever the case, Jesus manages to keep his disciples out of the firing line, despite Peter's valiant efforts to get back into the firing line by cutting off some dude's ear. Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is in total control. He's managing the soldiers arresting him. He's managing Peter so they don't arrest him and the rest of his disciples, like he promised. And he's putting his own freedom and his own life on the line to do it. Even though it looks bad, Jesus knows this is the cup the Father has given him to drink. This is what's meant to happen and he's making sure it does. The other day I was uh, chatting with a woman who wouldn't believe in Christianity because she couldn't believe in a God who would do what he did to his own son, Jesus. She said she'd never give her daughter to die, no matter how many others it might save, because that would be child abuse. And so she couldn't believe in a God who'd give up his son to die the way Jesus did. That, that's just child abuse. But as I pointed out to her, and as I think this passage shows us over and over again, Jesus wasn't forced into it. He willingly happily chose to orchestrate all these things so that he would end up putting his life on the line to save others. His disciples here in the first instance from not getting arrested and of course all who'd believe in him later from eternal punishment. So even though it looks bad, Jesus is in control. His father is not arm twisting into this situation. He's willingly doing what the father wants and he's actively making it so that it happens. He's in control of the when, where and how of his betrayal. He's in control of his own arrest. He's in control of looking after his own. And he's in control of all those who are against him as he exposes their underhanded ways. So we read from verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've, I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said, nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. In Jesus' day, a a formal Jewish hearing required that you interrogate witnesses before you interrogate the accused. So there's something off with this meeting, right? As they're interrogating Jesus. And and so Jesus actually directs his accusers to go to the many witnesses, as they should have, uh, who heard him uh, when he spoke openly and publicly, uh, as they should. Go and talk to them first. But for some insane reason, an official takes offence at this, slaps Jesus on the face, and but Jesus insists on a fair trial, verse 23. And without any reply, he's sent on, verse 24, which is telling. There's no comment. He just gets passed on. Even though what's happening to him is bad, who's in control? He is. Jesus is in control. He's in control of the when, where and who of his betrayal. He's in control of his own arrest. He's in control of looking after his own. And he's in control of all those who are against him. It might have looked like Jesus was falling into the world's hands, like the world was winning, but Jesus was in control. And having risen from the dead and gone back to the Father as he said he would, and there being given all authority in heaven and on earth, he's still in control, even if it looks like the world is winning. 
Uh, just over a week ago, the Northern Government, the Northern Territory Government, passed an amendment to anti-discrimination laws removing an exemption clause which allowed religious schools to discriminate against a person on the basis of their religious beliefs or sexuality. So now, with that amendment, that exemption removed, an atheist could apply for a leadership position at a Christian school and legally not be rejected. Indeed, any communication from the employing school that is deemed, and this is from the, uh, the law, reasonably likely to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate another person or group of people could be grounds for legal action against the school. Now, given uh, that the majority of religious schools in the New, uh, Northern Territory are Christian, this bill could be seen as just weaponising the law to attack Christianity and perhaps down the track, it's something that the rest of Australia will adopt as well. Let's pray that that's not the case, and that this uh, amended bill is repealed, and Australia remains largely supportive of Christian schools. But even if it isn't, and our government gets more and more hostile to Christianity, does that mean the world is winning over Jesus? I notice that in China... Uh, the government has increased over the last couple of years its opposition to Christianity, tearing down thousands of crosses from church buildings, forcing registered churches to replace hymns with communist party anthems, uh, removing Bible app from the Apple store in China, uh, forced closure of hundreds of house churches, imprisoning thousands of underground pastors and church members, arresting people for talking about Jesus, or, or distributing or even receiving non-state sanctioned Christian material and Bibles, installing surveillance cameras in church buildings, sometimes even in the pulpit. <laughs> There's one there. Rewriting the Bible to include core socialist values. And yet the government's own stats indicate that more and more people are becoming Christians in China. With Protestant Christianity, the fastest growing, at least 38 million. That's 3% of China's population, up, up from 22 million a decade ago. And that's the government's count. The real figure is probably much larger than that, perhaps as many as 22 million more in unregistered underground churches, a whopping 60 million Christians. Even though it's bad in China, would you say the world is winning over Jesus? You couldn't, could you? And it never will. As Jesus promised, he said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Not even Hades, the domain of Satan and death, let alone any pawn of that domain, like the Chinese government or any other government that looks to make things bad for believers, can stop Jesus building his church, let alone destroying it. He's in control. And so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fight like the world fights. We don't need to defend Jesus with a sword. He can look after himself and his own. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't bother with, say, any political action to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy or even to try and win them back? No. But it certainly won't mean demonising those who do or those who don't. 
And if we're ever tempted to resort to fear or violence over some good cause in Jesus' name, it might be worth thinking about Peter here in this story trying to cut an ear off something Jesus has already got managed. We need to trust Jesus, no matter how bad it might seem for him and his ways in the world. No matter how much it seems the world is winning, we can trust him because he's in control, even when it looks bad for him. And not just when it looks bad for him, but even when we're bad, he's in control. As Peter goes on to show, just moments earlier, Peter's been bragging, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And tragically, but not surprisingly, that's exactly what happens. We read it earlier in the passage. Earlier, uh, Peter follows the crowd, taking Jesus and hangs around while he's interrogated. And there a girl asks him in verse 17, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. In the Greek, it's a bit Yoda-like though. It actually reads, not I am. But I wonder if this is actually a clever way for Peter to say more than he means. And where Jesus says earlier, I am, Peter says, not I am. Unlike Jesus, who's in control of of everything and doesn't save himself, Peter saves himself and at the same time shows he needs saving from himself. Where Jesus keeps his word to Peter by laying down his life, Peter fails to keep his word to Jesus by keeping his life. He's definitely not Jesus. Not I am. Which he confirms again in verse 25. As Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, Not I am. And finally he denies Jesus the third time, denies knowing him or even being with him. Yeah, maybe it's particularly challenging at this last time because he's questioned by a relative of the guy that he cut the year off. Uh, verse 26, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Jesus said he'd deny him three times before the rooster crowed and Peter was right on time. Like he couldn't even help it. Like he was dancing to a tune that he had no control over, a tune that Jesus knew he would, but wished he wouldn't. A desperately selfish tune. The devil's tune. In the uh, recent, very popular TV series, uh, Stranger Things, in the latest season, the arch-villain, Vecna, is played by the actor Jamie Campbell Bower. Now, in getting into character, Bower said he listened to a lot of black metal uh, music kind of stuff. Bands like Carpathian, Forest, Dark Throne and Mayhem. I'm sure that they're all on your Spotify playlist. Uh, apparently these uh, inspired him in his evil, getting into this evil Vecna character. But uh, I wonder, does evil actually have a sound? Yeah, does evil have a sound? I heard someone suggest uh, it's whatever offers the most beguiling vision of selfishness which can't be black metal music because that's overtly confrontational and it runs the risk of provoking serious thought and serious thought always gets in the way of wanton selfishness. You need something saccharine, celebrating unbridled hedonism and easy on the ears. 
So imagine pretty much any song by Ed Sheeran. Maybe the song Shivers, just playing in the background. Imagine it, as Peter denies Jesus. Shivers singing Ed Sheeran in the background once, twice. Peter denies to then the song quickly ends the last time and the rooster crows. Something so ordinary, even banal. You know, a rooster crowing in the early morning light. A sound that turns into the perfect final note in the devil's tune, leaving Peter looking really, really bad. And leaves us deflated as our opinion of him drops to the last strangled crow of the rooster. And we see him, Peter, for the gutless and selfish jerk that he is. A jerk that Jesus knew he was all along. But he will not lose him to Satan. As we read earlier in chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And that prayer is answered. As we come to the end of John's Gospel, it's beautiful. Peter's faith doesn't fail. Jesus restores him and incredibly installs him as a key leader of his people, the church. As we read earlier of Jesus' promise to build his church, it's actually, he's speaking to Peter and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Not only could Satan and death not stop Jesus building his church, they couldn't stop him building his church on the rock that he calls Peter. As Peter goes on to be, become a key leader in the early church. Yeah, even when Peter looked bad, Jesus was in control. And in some ways, Peter here is, is a perfect example of a Christian for us. Someone whose faith rests entirely on Jesus being in control, even when, especially when we're bad. I was chatting with someone recently who was uh, feeling really convicted uh, about being judgmental. That they were struggling to accept that Jesus wants them anymore. And the way they were talking about how how the guilt kept them awake at night actually reminded me of times when I've had a gut ache over my own guilt when I've hurt people so badly they can't even stand to be around me anymore and I've wondered if at those moments if Jesus wants me anymore because I certainly didn't or maybe for you it's been uh, that you just can't kick that bad habit you just keep falling into it or you can't seem to care enough to spend more time with God and you reckon Jesus wouldn't want you anymore because of it well Peter's denial here and Jesus' earlier prayer for him should be a comfort for us because Jesus doesn't just pray for Peter he doesn't just pray for Peter and the apostles uh, back there at the time he prays for us too we read it we looked at it last week chapter 17 where Jesus prays this My prayer is not for them alone, for Peter and the other apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself maybe in them. As Jesus prayed for Peter, so he prays for us. 
that we may be one with each other and the Father and Jesus, that we may see Jesus' glory and know God more so that we might know his love for us more and more. And as it was for Peter, so it is for us. No matter how bad we've been, no matter how much we've failed to honour Jesus or spend time with him or care about him, no matter how many times we've denied him, Jesus is still in control. And he decides if he wants us, not us. And his prayer for us is pretty definitive on that point. He wants us. Even as the proverbial rooster crows, as we do something that we know is desperately selfish, even diabolical, like denying Jesus, our time, our confession, our love, and our heart drops, even then Jesus is in control. His love for us still stands as we trust him and accept he's put his perfect life on the line to save our miserable one, he will restore us. No matter how bad we are or have been, because Jesus is control of our life with him, now and forever, not us. Thank God. Some people uh, struggle with the idea that... Uh, God's predestined those who believe in Jesus, who believe in Jesus and uh, to be saved. They struggle with the idea that to be saved by Jesus is entirely God choosing us. That is not based on anything good or bad that we can do. But I suspect, I suspect they struggle with this only up until the point that they find themselves selfishly denying Jesus in one way or another and worrying about how bad they are. Because then there is nothing sweeter than knowing that Jesus is in control. And that because he's given his life for us, there is nothing that can stop him wanting us and having us now and forever. Because even when things look bad for Jesus, and even when we're desperately bad, wonderfully, Jesus is in control. I'm going to thank him for that wonderful truth now. Let's talk to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that even when things look terribly bad for Jesus, he was in control. And even when Peter denied Jesus, he was still in control. And even when we deny Jesus, even when we do not live up to the calling and the faith that you've given us in Jesus, and feel desperately guilty about it and hopeless. Help us to remember that Jesus is in control and that he loves us and that he will be with us and that he has forgiven us for all those things that we have said, done or will do, say or think that deny him or are not consistent with being one of your children and that in Jesus we are safe because he is in control of our life now and for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.